Let's join in prayer. We come, Lord, with thanks to you that you are the God of your scriptures and for all the things that Jesus said, we're very grateful because they lead and instruct us in the way we should go. None more than the text before us this morning, which calls us to do certain things that are hard, that our hearts will react against and say, no, I don't want to do those things. So please help us. Please give us grace that we might hear them well and do them for Jesus' sake. Amen. In our studies so far in the recent chapters of Matthew's Gospel, you might remember that the text we looked at two weeks ago was a major turning point in the presentation of Jesus' life and ministry. It was such a pivotal moment when, in the region of Caesarea Philippi, Jesus put his disciples on the mat when he asked them, But what about you? Who do you say that I am? You'll remember too, I hope, how Peter responded, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. This confession of Peter's was something that all the disciples had been gradually coming to realise, though they had been slow to grasp it. But there and then, at that moment, uh, the penny dropped, we could say, and the lights began to flash, and the significance of all that Jesus had done and said, all of his miracles and all of his teaching now converged. And they saw, at least Peter did on their behalf, that Jesus was not only the chosen instrument of salvation for the people of God, but that he was the son of the living God, that is to say, God in the flesh. Now with regard to this confession that Peter made, we need to note well that Jesus received his statement. He accepted it. He didn't turn to Peter and say, No, Peter, you've read me all wrong. I'm not the Messiah. I'm not the Son of God. Rather, he accepted it. He affirmed Peter saying to Peter, Blessed are you, Simon Peter, because flesh and blood didn't show this to you. My Father revealed this to you. Affirming that Peter's confession, Peter's words about him were right. He was the Messiah. He is the Messiah. He was and is the truly one and only, the unique Son of the living God. But after this, which we find in this next section of the text before us, the follow-up conversation that followed up the turning point, we must note that Jesus didn't leave it there. He didn't think, well, my disciples have got me right, my identity right at last, now I can move on to other things. He didn't view Peter's confession as being an end in itself, But what he did do instead was go on and make plain to the disciples more information 
Now that they knew that who he was, it was vitally important that they knew what he came to do. So that this idea of Messiah in their minds could be clarified and clear. So they didn't leave this place having got his identity right but failed big time in the kind of Messiah that he was, that he'd come to be and the purpose of his coming. That would be a tragedy indeed as it is in the case of so many people who may have Jesus right on one hand but have no idea what the cross was about. So in these verses we find Jesus talking a lot about his own death, then the death that all the disciples must undergo and spoke of how some of them standing there wouldn't see death before they saw his glory. So three things that revolve around death, his own death, their death and the fact that there would be no death until they saw something. And all of it needs some comment in the way of explanation and then application. Let's think on these things together. First let's consider how Jesus spoke of his death and made plain to the disciples that as Messiah he would give up his life. Verses 21 to 23 we find that Jesus now wants them to take wants to take them one step further. Having revealed to them that he was and is the Messiah, the next step for him is to make clear the kind of Messiah that he came to be and that as Messiah he had come to suffer and to die. Now why would he need to do this? Couldn't he have just trusted the disciples would connect the dots of the Old Testament prophecies and come up with the right answer about him? Well, clearly, no, they wouldn't have done that. See, the expectation at the time, the common understanding of the Messiah, was that he would be a mighty political ruler who would overthrow the nation's enemies, including this day and age, delivering Israel from Roman oppression and lead Israel into days of dominance on a world scale. And so Jesus, knowing full well that his disciples would have had heard all this talk, wanted to straighten out what the disciples had heard and make it plain. He would be nothing at all like what most people were expecting. Now add to this the fact that the disciples already had a hard time in getting so far in their understanding. Uh, Jesus had to tell them all this because they were probably wondering if he is the Messiah, then why is he not reigning on a throne in Jerusalem? And why is he caring for people around the shores of the Sea of Galilee and in Gentile lands far away? And for them to hear him say now, as he said, As Messiah, I must suffer and die at the hands of the religious leaders of the people. This is going to be incomprehensible for them. The disciples had great difficulties, no doubt, reconciling these two truths. A Messiah, yes, but a dying and crucified one? Impossible. And that becomes evident, don't we see that in Peter? As he blurts out, Lord, that will never happen to you. 
Poor Peter. Uh, we say on some occasions from rooster to feather, feather duster. And here he goes from being one whom Jesus commends to one whom he almost condemns. Blessed are you, Simon of of son of John. Get behind me, Satan, in the next breath. From getting a pat on the back for identifying Jesus as being that Messiah to being a spokesman, unwittingly of course, for the devil. You couldn't have a greater contrast, could you? And you probably would never find a more sheepish and chastened disciple as Peter. How would you feel? But understand the significance of this revelation that Jesus gives here, that he would give his life and die. Consider how this was and is the very foundation of the gospel, which those men would be called upon to preach to the world. Christ and him crucified, says Paul. Christ and him crucified. And see how this was so vital for the education of the disciples. Yes, you've got the Messiah bit right, disciples. But understand that I haven't come to fight the occupying power of Rome. There is another power that I'm seeking to, uh, to destroy and win a greater, more eternal victory over. The power of death itself. Messiah, he would give up his life. Secondly, in verses 24 to 26, we find that Jesus spoke to the disciples about their deaths and made it plain that as disciples, they should give up their lives. See how Jesus connects the unique sufferings and death that he will face with the life that he expects them to live. Not just to them but also to you and me in a very direct way. Matthew Henry says here, Christ, having shown his disciples that he must suffer and that he was ready and willing to do so, now begins to show them that they must suffer and be ready and willing to do so. His words are designed to set forth the regular and ordinary responsibilities of every one of his disciples as here Jesus sets down a law, a pattern of life for them, for us. Let's note what he said. There are three parts to it. First, he called them to deny self. Now, what in the world would that mean? Let me suggest that Jesus was telling his disciples that they were called upon to renounce their yearning to possess, renounce their desire for power, their desire for the favour of men, their desire for human glory, all for the sake of seeking first the kingdom of God. Jesus' disciples were waiting for him to set up an earthly kingdom in which they would reign. Remember what James and John said, when you come, let us sit at your right and your left hand. But Jesus spoke this way to show them that not only he would die, but that principle and expectation would be for them too, on a daily basis, towards the things of this world. Then he said they were to take up their crosses 
Note how Jesus is very careful here. He wasn't speaking of them taking up his cross. He didn't say, take up my cross. Only Simon of Cyrene once did that for Jesus and only for a little while on the way to the cross. But he said, take up your cross. By that he called them to be ready to bear and embrace the afflictions that would come to them because they were his. And this was not a call to be stiff upper lip, stiff upper lip and stoic. Rather, they were to be ready to let these trials do the work in them that God had sent them for, to refine them and to make them more like himself. And then he said they were to follow him. What did that mean? It meant they were to look to Jesus as their master and follow and imitate his obedience and example so that in whatever trials lie in their paths, even as they were obedient to him, that they would continue as his disciples despite them. No turning back. No turning back. These are the three things within this call of Jesus which is given to these men. This is the very heart of what discipleship is about and what it means to be a disciple of Christ. Understand very clearly though what Jesus is saying and what he's not saying. He's not saying to them, I will save you because you deny yourselves. He's not saying I will save you because you've taken up your cross. He's saying because I've set my heart on you, because I've saved you by giving my life for you, so now do these things in response. Deny yourself, take up your cross and follow me. Jesus is filling out what it means to respond to saving grace. This call is not for them alone, but for all who would name the name of Christ and follow after him. Just as Paul would later tell us, you are not your own. You have bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. Third, in verse 28, Jesus spoke to them about something that would happen before they would die and made it plain that as witnesses they would see his glory. Now we hear him say, Truly I say to you, there are some some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. Now, this section of the text ends with this difficult comment of Jesus and it's caused much discussion and many interpretations. Remember that Jesus already has affirmed to these disciples that he is the Messiah He's just told them in verse 27 that as Messiah he will come in glory to repay each person for their deeds. And now he adds that some standing near to hear those words will not die until before they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. Well, many different explanations have been suggested about what Jesus meant by these words. Most scholars And commentators agree that he's referring to the transfiguration on the mountain, quite literally the very next event that Matthew mentions in the text that we're coming to next week, chapter 17. There we will see how Jesus appeared in glory. 
his kingdom came in glory as he was transfigured from being just an ordinary human into the glorious array of his glory as the Son of God. A smaller number of scholars uh, believe that Jesus was saying the disciples would not die before him, before seeing him resurrected or they would not die before the events at Pentecost or they would not die before they saw great numbers of people believe uh, following his return to heaven. A smaller number of scholars connect this to the fall of the temple in AD 70 and others even yet to the second coming. But the most natural explanation seems to be the transfiguration where something of the glory of which Jesus spoke of was seen. How do we apply this to ourselves Well, there are many applications of this text that time does not permit me to cover them all, but I'd like to give you something along these lines of how. How do you and I go about living the kind of life that Jesus calls us to? And then something along the lines of why. What are the reasons that he gives us such a call? How does self-denial and picking up your cross and following him, work out in practice? Well, let's think through them. Think for a moment about self-denial, of abandoning any thought that we can now live as though we are in charge. Think of it as a life, living a life of continued repentance. Continued repentance. Self-denial calls you as God's people and me to regularly cast ourselves on the Lord for mercy and to grow more in willingness to put his will above our own. So that even within the church family, as we rub shoulders with one another, instead of thinking to ourselves, well, others are not meeting my needs. Self-denial calls you to place your rights and your privileges and your needs below the rights and the privileges and the needs of others in the church family. Dying to self means self comes second or third or fourth. What about taking up the cross? How do we understand that? Well, for one thing it means being prepared to bear every affliction uh, that we face, knowing that nothing happens to us by accident. That every trial we face is brought to us into our way by our Heavenly Father for the sake of making us more like his Son. And so when trials come into our experience, instead of shaking our fist at God and saying, why are you doing this to me? We recognise that the Heavenly Father's loving purpose is that we may be made like Jesus, that we might bear the likeness and image of Jesus. And so we bear that cross. And what about following him? Well, it means to follow after his desires. It means to care about his agenda, to be concerned about his causes, to be ready to put everything else 
second and third and his cause first. It's putting into practice the call to seek first the kingdom of God above everything else. Seek first is in first and only. Not just first in a list of priorities, but first and only. And so we need to be asking ourselves as we hear these words from Jesus, if your practice of life, your walk, your witness is characterised by this kind of self-denial, this cross-bearing and this close following. But then also Jesus not only told them how to do it, but why to do these things. And in verses 25 to 28, we find three reasons. The first is found in his words, for whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Jesus here teaches that those who seek first their own interests will never find the satisfaction they're looking for, even in this life. Remember that Jesus had told them that he was going to Jerusalem to suffer and die. And Peter had said, God forbid, may that never happen to you. And in that context, we remember that Jesus didn't come to serve himself. He didn't come to do what was good for himself. But he came to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. So to do otherwise, to be only interested in advancing your own reputation, will be to miss the point out on what he came to do for us. Jesus gives the second argument, the importance of self-denial in verse 26, and that is, No temporal gain can compare to the loss of the soul. What does it count if you have ease and comfort and popularity and beauty and prestige and success and power and influence if you're going to hell? Ask Solomon. It's all vanity. Nothing that this life offers can add up to the gain of eternal life. On the one hand, we can have temporal contentment with the world along with eternal condemnation, or on the other hand, letting go of this world via self-denial and the reward of eternal life. Now, that's why a man like missionary martyr Jim Elliot could say, he is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. Do you believe that? That the rewards ahead are better than the rewards of this life? Or are you satisfied with the trinkets of the age? And then in verse 27 we see the third argument. While salvation is by grace, judgment is by works. Do these things fit together? Salvation by grace, judgment by works, absolutely they do. Salvation is a gift that God gives us regardless of our lack of merit. And yet according to his good pleasure, he repays what we do for him with a reward that we don't deserve. But not necessarily in this life. The reward will only come when the fullness of the kingdom comes, with the arrival of the king and judge and all is done and all is reviewed. 
and we'll all stand before the judgment seat of Christ and receive reward, whether large or small, for what's been done in serving the King. Now these truths which Jesus sets forth to us are vital to the Christian life and if you're at all like me, then you have a long way to go in your growth in them. But the one who gives attention to these things will have a great reward in the kingdom of heaven. So it boils down to this. Is responding to Jesus as his disciple in this way what you desire? For if it isn't, then maybe you've never really understood the type of Messiah that he is. Maybe you've never understood what he's done for you on the cross to bring you to God. Maybe you've never appreciated the death he suffered for you, never responded with thanks to him or believed his word that he is the Messiah or bowed the knee to him as Lord. Have you done these things? Have you done them? For there is no other way to eternal life. The only road it passes through is the cross. The cross for Jesus, the cross for you, and then the crown. But only after the cross. There's no shortcut to glory. It was so for Jesus, it is so for everyone who follows after him. Here's the paradox that Jesus speaks of. Live for the world and for self and you'll lose. But give up your life and live for him and you win. John tells us that the world is passing away but whoever does the will of God abides forever. Let's pray together. Lord our God, we bring thanks to you. These words of Jesus are hard. They force us to take note. There's good news and bad news here for us. The good news that he gave himself willingly to be the kind of Messiah you sent him to be. But the bad news is that we are called to join in his sufferings and to live for him. It's not as though... We're saved by him in order that we can go and do as we please. But we have this awesome responsibility to serve you as King and Lord. So give us grace, Lord, to do as we will sing about in a moment, to take up our cross, to lay down our life in death in some way like you did for us. Not that we save anyone by doing so, but we reflect back to you our gratitude, our thanks for what you did for us. Please help us to have a thankful heart so these things will not be a burden to us, but a delight. We pray in his name. Amen.